text for today is Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Let's pray together. Father God, it is a joy to gather this morning as your people and to worship your name. And God, as we watch all of the chaos in the Ukraine and, and pray for that country uh, and for the people, let us not take for granted uh, just the freedom that we have. God, let us not get apathetic in our affluence and freedom, but God, let us use these for the advancement of your kingdom. Even as we see in Jonah's life this morning, God, awaken us from our slumber and make us a people who love to draw near to you in your word and through prayer as you shape us into the image of your son. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to be here. Had a foundations class this morning. It was amazing. Best one ever. I feel like I talk, like I'm primed. I'm primed to talk now. So it's going to be rambly like last week. But Jonah chapter 2, we had a couple weeks in chapter 1, and now we are rolling into chapter 2. And when we, when we left Jonah at the end of chapter 1, he had been cast into the sea, and the Lord sent this giant fish to gobble him up. And then he spent three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. And so today's chapter, is, it's just a little bit crazy, right? It's just, it takes place in the belly of a fish. That's a little hard for us to wrap our minds around three days and three nights inside a fish. So there was obviously some miraculous preservation of Jonah inside this fish. And Scholars, you know, have spent countless hours trying to deduce exactly what species of fish could pull this off and to de determine what were the, the living conditions and how was he sustained inside this fish. It, it's so easy to get bogged down in, in trying to figure out exactly how this is possible. 
and to actually miss the greater miracle of restoration that took place in Jonah's heart. Because we, as, as human beings, I think, have this tendency, tendency to place tremendous value on physical miracles and then, and then to minimize the miracle of salvation, right? People have always been mesmerized with miracles that have only a temporal implication, temporal healing or demons being cast out, even, even being brought back to life, right? Lazarus was brought back to life, but it was, it was temporal. As, as awesome as that was, Lazarus just got to die twice. But salvation, redemption, reconciliation with God, it's eternal. But we have a, a skewed perspective on what is more miraculous. And it was this very thing that Jesus was getting at in Matthew 9 when, when he comes to the paralytic and says, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Which then, as you know, sent these religious leaders into a tizzy. And then they started accusing Jesus of blasphemy, to which Jesus responded, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? See, it was a hypothetical. He knew what they thought was miraculous, but he also knew what the true miracle was. And, Jesus, and the text says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So I don't want to minimize Jonah's three-day VRBO in the belly of a fish, but rather I want to emphasize the miraculous faithfulness of God in bringing Jonah to repentance. See, despite Jonah's rebellion against God, despite his disobedience and faithlessness as he ran away from God's presence, God did not waver in his faithfulness. See, Jonah thought that he could flee the presence of God, but all along it was God who had set Jonah on this course of restoration. As we read in Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The, the just response for Jonah's flight from God would have been for God to abandon him, like let him die in the storm. But instead, instead, God pursued him with loving discipline, exposing the idols of his heart and shepherding him back into his presence. Like, isn't, that, isn't that what we do as parents? We allow? We, we sometimes cause sorrow, loss, grief, an occasional pain in the lives of our children because we love them? Because we know that discipline is necessary for them to grow in wisdom, to be healthy, to keep them safe. As believing parents whose hope is rooted in eternal and abundant life in Christ, would we not choose temporary struggles for our children if we knew it would produce the fruit of faith? Or imagine if your child fled far from God into a life of self-indulgence and sin that they lived in a life of open disobedience to him. 
If, if we truly grasp the eternal importance of them knowing Christ as their Savior, would we not choose that our children be taken to the brink of physical death if we knew it would produce the faith that leads to salvation? And I get it, that's a horrible question which no parent should ever be faced with, but this is exactly what we see in Jonah's life. God's love for Jonah was so great that he took Jonah to the edge of darkness, to the belly of Sheol, as Jonah says, to make vividly clear to Jonah that he would never find what he's looking for apart from God. In chapter 1, Jonah fled from the living word of God and he rejected the indwelling word. And his attempts to evade God's presence had landed him at the bottom of the ocean with his life slipping away. Here in chapter 2, Jonah recounts the darkness of his struggle in verses 4 through 6. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. See, Jonah's sin had taken him far from the relational presence of the Lord, across land and sea into the midst of a storm, and he now sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And then we read in verse 7, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. So as Jonah struggled for his life, a wave of clarity washed over him. Like he had woken from a bad dream, his eyes were opened, and Jonah called out to the Lord, his God, the words that had been in his head, that he had spoken to the people of Israel and the crew of the ship came alive in his heart. Having spent his life prophesying to others, he now speaks words of prophecy over his own life. He says in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. See, Jonah's gaze turned from himself to God. He realized that his only hope in life was found in the very God from whom he fled. He had to let go of the false hopes and false identity he had created to himself, created for himself to renounce the vain idols of his heart and to return to God's steadfast love through repentance. And repentance is obviously a theme we, a theme we see throughout the book of Jonah. And in, in Hebrew culture, the word repent is like this word picture meaning return or to go back along the path which you came like the, the prodigal son from the New Testament painfully making his way back home after rebelliously fleeing with his inheritance. Jonah is our Old Testament prodigal. He must return from a far country and make his way back home. As Paul says to the Corinthians, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Let me read that again. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. 
True repentance leads to salvation. But repentance can't be separated from faith. Repentance is turning from the sin in our hearts and turning toward God in faith. Rejecting the lies of the world and our flesh that tell us hope can be found apart from God. So on the boat, we saw Jonah's regret for the ramifications of his sin, but he wasn't repentant. As we just read from 2 Corinthians, he was experiencing the grief that produces death. He grieved his situation, but not his sin. But in the water, we see Jonah's eyes open to the depth of his sin against God. And this godly grief produced repentance leading to salvation. In Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4, David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, our sin is first and foremost against God. It separates us from his relational presence. Like Jonah, our eyes must be open to the gravity of our sinfulness and we must repent and turn toward God in faith, trusting in his mercy and grace for the forgiveness of our sins. This movement of restoration in Jonah's life is seen in two areas that he had formerly fled from God. We see Jonah return to the presence of God and he also returns to the word of God. And I want to look at those two things, beginning with his return to God's presence. And one of the most telling indicators of a life lived in God's presence is prayer. While it would be foolish to assume that everyone who prays is intimately engaged in the presence of God, what we can say with confidence is if you don't pray, you don't value his relational presence. He is not your treasure. And so the beginning of chapter 2 is a, a powerful shift in Jonah's heart. After doing everything he could to get away from God in chapter 1, chapter 2 begins with these three words. Then Jonah prayed. And that changed everything. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. And there's actually two instances of Jonah coming to God in prayer here in chapter 2. So he, he prays from the belly of the fish, as we just read. And in his prayer, which is the bulk of this chapter, he recounts, how he called out to God from the depth of the water. And so it's important here to note that, that in chapter 2, all of the distress Jonah's referencing in this prayer is not his time in the fish's belly, but rather he's recounting the distress of his time in the water. Jonah says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And this, we see this Sheol word in the Old Testament a lot. And in Hebrew culture, it was thought of as this place of divine punishment. It was more than physical death. It was a place where chaos and darkness dwelled. 
And in ancient Near East texts, Sheol is described as entering the mouth of death itself. And so here in Jonah, it's used kind of metaphorically to paint a picture of the spiritual and physical anguish of Jonah's situation. His, his life was at its darkest point. He was spiritually bankrupt and at the edge of death. But as his life was fainting away, he says, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Jonah remembered the Lord. But it wasn't as though Jonah forgot him, right? You can't run from somebody you don't know. Jonah hadn't forgotten who God was, but he had forgotten how God was. This Hebrew phrase to remember the Lord used by Jonah encompasses a calling to mind of of God's character and his actions. Jonah in the water remembered the magnitude and the majesty of God. That he's not only infinite in power, but he is abundant in grace and mercy. He remembered the security and confidence of being united with his creator, and he longed for God's presence, and he cried out in prayer. And in a culture fueled by efficiency and experience, prayer is kind of old-fashioned. Prayer is it's, it's low-tech. It doesn't fit into our instant gratification world of touchscreens and multitasking. Why pray when you can say, hey, Google, and get any answer you want, right? It's hard to carve out time to find quiet place in our lives because our lives are hectic. And even when we have time, there's so many other pressing things we could be getting done. Our time is valuable. But the reason people often don't deem prayer as necessary isn't just because they don't see the importance of prayer. It's because they don't see the importance of God's presence. This is where Jonah was in chapter 1. He talked about God with the ship's crew, But he didn't see a pressing need to actually talk with God. He had his own plan. He had his own problems, an agenda. But this all changed in the water. When Jonah's physical life was made to represent his soul, which was near death, he saw the darkness of his sin and he humbled himself before God in prayer. And when Jonah saw the reality of his condition apart from God, the necessity of prayer became vividly clear. It was his hope of salvation. And so one point I want to make this morning is that a life that is grounded in the presence of God is a life saturated with prayer. Prayer is an acknowledgement of who God is. It is a proclamation of our weakness and our dependence upon Him for every breath we breathe. Just because we're not physically drowning doesn't mean we're any better off than Jonah was in the water. Jonah was spiritually bankrupt long before he hit the water. His time in the ocean simply served to illuminate the darkness of his soul kind of like 2020, right? We saw people going crazy all over, but those struggles didn't make anyone crazy. That was simply the storm 
that stirred and exposed the deep-rooted sin that was already there. And prayer is God's powerful gift to us to help us expose and root out and battle this indwelling sin before it blows up. And if we claim to know God, to dwell in his presence, but don't pray, we're fooling ourselves. He may be the God of our mind, but like Jonah in chapter 1, he's not the God of our heart. The presence of God is not an idea or an emotion. It doesn't wax and wane with our emotional fortitude. It's not something we create, but something we embrace. It flows from a posture of prayer in our lives, from a deep-seated satisfaction and dependence upon Him. His presence is not dictated by our emotions or our experiences, but rather our emotions and our experiences must be informed by His presence through prayer. If we don't find our hope in God's presence through prayer, then we are placing our hope somewhere else. And so repentance and faith are seen in Jonah's life as he returns to the presence of God. And then secondly, we see him return to the Word of God. If you were to hear Jonah's prayer here in chapter 2 without knowing where it was from, you would likely guess it was from the Psalms. You hear Psalm 18 and Psalm 42 and a number of other familiar Psalms in what Jonah prays. When Jonah remembered the Lord, the word of God that was in his heart, in his head, filled his heart. The words of the, the psalmist's struggles and hope flowed from him like living water. Jonah had fled from God's living voice, but now he had returned to his written word. In our time of deepest need, the word of God is our comfort. It is our voice of grief and struggle. It's our, our proclamation of triumph and hope. We, we need the Word of God rooted in our souls because it gives voice to our deepest desires and emotions. It, it hymns us in and, and places us firmly on the foundation of God's truth. How can we claim that God is the treasure of our hearts if we don't seek to know Him in His Word? That's like me saying that Cheryl is the love of my life. But I really don't think it's important that I spend any time with her or talk with her ever. Right? That's absurd, isn't it? If that were the case, you would all lovingly tell me that I'm a moron. Because you love me. Not just for fun. Because you love Cheryl too, okay? Thank you, Amanda. But this is how we often treat God, because we're busy, we're overwhelmed, we're distracted. But we always seem to have a few minutes for Facebook, or Netflix, or wash the dirty clothes, or clean the garage, or whatever our latest hobby is. So what, what did we call sin a, a few weeks ago? It was wrongly ordered love. Sometimes that may be why we struggle with prayer. We have wrongly ordered love. And so, when I was in China several years ago, several, a 
okay, 25, right? <laughs> Forget. I have a birthday this week. I'm getting older. Um, yeah, uh, several decades ago, <laughs> when I was in China, a Chinese man told me, he said, people in China eat to live, but in America, they live to eat. And that always stuck with me. It's always been in the back of my mind. We, as Americans, have these three daily priorities on our calendar that we don't want anyone messing with. They are breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? We may have to move them slightly on occasion, but if you take one away, things could get ugly. These are waypoints of our day. And listen, I, I'm a fan of food. I got some weird eating habits, but I'm a big believer in the practice. It is necessary to sustain life. But it's interesting in light of our meal-oriented lives that Jesus actually referred to himself as, what was it? Bread of life, yes, and living water. So, I have lots of crazy ideas. Some revolve around Christmas. This is another one that none of you will like. Well, two, three of you will. Um, so just dream with me for a second. What would it, what would it look like if rather than our days revolving around these three waypoints of consumption, that we structured our days around time in God's Word? What if... These three times of prayer were the, the constants in our schedule, and everything else was squeezed in around them. I mean, you still get to eat just the same amount. But if our day was dictated by being in the presence of God rather than in the presence of food. I know it sounds crazy, but, but why is that crazy? And I, I can help you out. Why is that crazy? One of the arguments is is this type of discipline creates legalism. There is a strong aversion to legalism in the church. People, people claim that, if, if, that reading the word and prayer is of no value if you don't do them with joy. That if you read your Bible when you don't really feel like it, you're not acting in faith, you're just being legalistic. And I, I get the idea but the problem with this logic is that it's rooted in our emotions. And our emotions are fickle. God's word and God's presence and prayer are where we find our joy. When we are least inclined to open the word and hear from God is likely when we need it the most. That kind of thinking has kind of created a, a generation of emotionally driven Christians whose spiritual health is, is subject to this roller coaster of their feelings. See, Jonah trusted in his emotions over the word of God in chapter 1, and it almost cost him his life. The natural inclination of our flesh is always to flee from God, from his presence and from his word. We need the word of God because we are discontent people. We are lazy and selfish and easily distracted from the truth. We are in a constant battle against our own flesh and against the influences of the world. If I only read my Bible or prayed when I felt like it, it wouldn't happen very often. 
But in the depth of my soul, I know that the daily grounding in God's word and in his presence through prayer is the power to make it through the day, to resist my own desire to find my identity apart from him. As as Jonah finally realized, it's in the word of God that we find our deepest meaning and purpose in life. So the second point that I want to make is that True repentance in faith is evidenced by a life that sees the value of God's word and seeks God in it. It is in his word that we meet a God who is abounding in love and grace and mercy. See, there's a a stark contrast between the Jonah we see in chapter 1 and the Jonah we see in chapter 2. As we discussed earlier, Jonah's repentance and faith had produced a reversal, of course. He is no longer running from God, but running towards him. See, Jonah experienced a spiritual awakening. His eyes were open to the sovereignty of God. He saw the depth of his sin and his need for salvation. And now, Jonah looks back over his life, and he sees God's hand at work in areas that he was previously blind. He no longer says, the crew hurled him into the sea. Verse 3 says, you, God, cast me into the deep. It was you, God, working through the storm and the crew to bring about your purpose of redemption in my life. And I was blind. When we grasp the magnitude of God's sovereign control in our lives, our experiences take on new meaning. When our hearts are awakened to God's power and glory, we find rest in the promise of of Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Like Job, we may not see the eternal significance of our struggles but we can know that even in our darkest hour, God is ever-present. He is always working all things together for good. As Jonah realized in his life, the mercy and love of God is, it's not always a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not always this wonderful emotional experience. Sometimes it involves storms, and drowning and being consumed by a giant fish. That was God's mercy. And if we're running from God, we will often see storms and struggles in life as God's absence, as if they were outside his control, or maybe he doesn't care or doesn't exist. But when our hearts have been awakened to his loving kindness, the storms in our lives draw us into dependence upon God. Our perspectives our perspective changes. Like like Jonah, we stop running from God and humble ourselves before him. We echo Jonah's proclamation from verse 9 that salvation belongs to the Lord. See, the hope we have in Christ as those who have trusted in him for our salvation is that while trials will come, we know that we will never face the storm of God's wrath. Christ endured this storm for us on the cross, bringing us reconciliation with God. 
He took on our sin and he imputed his righteousness upon us so that God no longer sees our sin but Christ's righteousness on our behalf. And the call on our lives is to daily walk in repentance, to daily turn and trust once again in Christ. We need the gospel every day. Like Jonah, we need to be awakened to the glory and the loving kindness of God and to dwell in his presence. And my prayer is that we would be a community that seeks God in his word, that seeks God in prayer with confidence, that we will be protected in the midst of the storms and empowered to live boldly as ministers of reconciliation in this community. Let's pray together. Father God, increase our faith. God, give us an unwavering assurance of your love towards us. Implant in our hearts the truth that through Christ, you no longer view us through the string of our failures and sins but his perfect righteousness. God, give us boldness and give us confidence in this truth. Make us a people who find comfort in prayer, who find life in your word, knowing that the good work that you have begun in us, you have also promised to bring to completion for your glory and for our joy. Amen.